This is Echo of Fidelity. That's why we demand a new Green Deal, and we demand it right now. People will vote if there is something worth voting for. And a Green New Deal is exactly what that is. Thank you all so much. Let's organize together. Don't settle for less. What happens when you question global warming? Mark Morano, author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change, has first-hand experience. National Geographic accused him of being a top-tier climate denier. U.S. Weekly Magazine said his research infuriates Hollywood, and wanted posters went up in Paris when he attended the U.N. Climate Summit. This interview with Mark Morano will tell you what the green socialist left doesn't want you to know. So how did you get involved in this fight, and what motivates you to continue? Interesting question, thank you. Um, I got involved because I was always sort of a conservative Republican, except when it came to environmental issues. I was essentially indoctrinated uh, as a kid, and I'm talking from like age 12 through maybe 22 on environmental issues. I didn't like President uh, Reagan's interior secretary because he was putting in roads in the forests and uh, he was harming the trees. And I was always worried about species extinction. I was worried about the Amazon rainforest. Bought it hook, line and sinker. But what happened was uh, I read reading the works of Dixie Lee Ray, the former nuclear physicist, and actually specifically on the Amazon, she had saying it's the least endangered forest that the trees regenerate. I was so shocked when I first heard this, this would have been about 1990, the Rio Earth Summit, which would have been 1992, that I started investigating that. And I started looking into the whole environmental movement, culminating in actually doing a documentary on the Amazon rainforest. So the realization that I had been conned on many of these environmental issues is what turned me, so by the time I was started to focus on climate, I was already skeptical of it. So I started investigating the, the climate movement and I was just, it was amazing to me how Essentially, big science, universities, the media, academia, and institutions like the United Nations and others were just promoting this almost as a lobbying perspective, as a campaign cause. And when I started talking to scientists and uh, interviewing scientists, it quickly became, essentially became my focus of work uh, as an investigative journalist and then later working in the United States Senate. I think a lot of college students are in that position where they feel like they need to subscribe to climate change and the, the agenda that's behind it. Um, could you say a word about the ideology that's behind the climate change uh, hype? Let's start with a bumper sticker philosophy. I saw a bumper sticker today. Big science is not a liberal conspiracy. Oh yes it is, or yes it can be, and much of it is. And here's what I mean by that, and here's why that bumper sticker is wrong. When the regulatory state, i.e the uh, Environmental Protection Agencies, the United Nations, the U.S. federal government, when they want to regulate, they look for justifications and causes, and that's the natural state of any government. So essentially, what they've done, and if you go back to the beginning of the, of the environmental movement, of the modern environmental movement in the 1960s, they've used every environmental scare from overpopulation to resource scarcity to threat of famine to deforestation to global cooling uh, as an excuse 
to increase the regulatory powers of the state. In other words, we're facing overpopulation, we're facing global cooling. We need to redistribute wealth. We need sovereignty limiting treaties. We need more central planning. We need less freedom, less capitalism. I actually point that out in my book. So the motivating factor between climate change and, the, and what's going on today is global warming is merely the latest environmental scare with the exact same solutions going back 50 years. In other words, it doesn't really matter what the science of global warming. They actually have quotes. Their main figures say that. The EU climate commissioner said, even if we're wrong on the science, we're doing the right thing by policy. What is that policy? The UN climate chief explicitly stated, and I interviewed her on this, we seek a centralized transformation that will make life on planet Earth very different for everyone. That's the UN climate chief's explicit goal. Her assistant, a guy named Edenhofer, actually said, we will redistribute wealth by climate policy. This is not even about environmental policy anymore. They're openly talking about it. They talk about global governance. They talk about uh, CO2 budgets for every man, woman, and child on the planet. This is their goal, and global warming is merely the latest scare. You can go back, and I do go back in the book. Global cooling had the exact same solutions. It's always the intervention and the, the increasing the power of the regulatory state. That is why we're hearing about global warming. We're not hearing about global warming because of temperature or storms or polar bears. It's because they're seeking a justification. They don't want to argue on the merits their policies. In other words, the Green New Deal, they just admitted IOC's chief of staff said this was never about the climate. This was a, uh, a, a increase the government kind of thing, a change the whole economy type of thing. Her, uh, former chief of staff, uh, campaign manager, actually said a similar thing, that this was actually not about the climate. They're openly admitting that. They don't want to argue their points on the merit instead, so they use subdiffuse. We only have 12 years left. We're facing a climate emergency as cities and colleges are now comically declaring that across the, the world. Uh, so they don't, have to, they don't have to deal with that. That's how global warming becomes part of the agenda tool for the regulatory state. Now, in practical terms, if we followed all the demands of the environmental movement, what impact would that have on the lives of everyday Americans? First, let me answer your question by saying, assuming we actually faced a climate emergency, we would all be doomed if we had to rely on the EPA and the United Nations uh, or the Green New Deal to save us. Now, before we even talk about the economic and social and, and, and development impacts, it's very simple. Even if, we, if every country promised what they did in the UN Paris climate agreement that everyone hailed as saving the earth, John Kerry signed with his two-year-old granddaughter on his lap because he was signing for the future, saving the planet, it would delay the temperature. Assuming you believe the UN science, which you should not in any way, shape, or form believe, it would delay the temperature by you know, a few months, the temperature 100 years from now by a few months. It would not be detectable on any measure, even if they were right on the science and everyone complied. In other words, it's completely scientifically meaningless. Green New Deal, same thing. Using the EPA's own models, it would have no impact on the climate. Zero. Wouldn't even impact global emissions, let alone possibility of temperature or storm. So we start out by saying these are all symbolism, and they will admit that there's nothing they're proposing which would have any impact. In fact, one of the quotes I have is an Ivy League scientist who says uh, the, the policies prescribed, no policies proposed as of yet would have any impact on the climate if, in fact, the climate was controlled by CO2. It's all window dressing. Having said that, they will have huge impacts. The UN Paris Agreement, most expensive treaty in world history. The Green New Deal estimates up to 94, 93 or $4 trillion. 
uh, hammering families with unnecessary energy costs. We have uh, gas tax proposals, 50 cents a gallon. Would you rather have bad storms or pay 50 cents a gallon? I'm sorry. So if we all agree to pay 50 cents a gallon, we're gonna get less hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and droughts. What era are we living in? They're essentially saying your SUV controls the weather the same as your car controls it. So it's a way to transform the economy, massive wealth redistribution, massive central planning, with literally bean counters affecting every aspect of your life. And I say that because the UN chief has actually said we need to treat meat eaters the same way we treat smokers and relegate them to a section of a restaurant or outside or ban it completely. We need to, uh, stop gas-powered cars, ban that, make them all electric, despite the fact that electric uses all sorts of rare earth minerals that you need massive amounts of fossil fuels to get and battery technology and they're no more earth-friendly. We need to affect our diet, agriculture, they're going after cows, they're going after your appliances, Energy Star, uh, Department of Energy, every aspect of your life, your washing machines, your dishwashers, less efficient, less powerful, more efficient, but less powerful than they were 15 years ago. Low-end appliances, 15 years ago outperform high-end ones today because the government is slowly choking the life out of everything and making them less and less powerful, all in the name of saving the planet. Same thing with cars. The SUV has been statutorily killed and the Trump administration is trying to save it, but it looks like we're looking at 54 and a half miles per gallon coming up in a few years. Automakers are going along. It's just cars, they're, they're every tentacle you can imagine, they're reaching into our life. There's talks about controlling thermostats, uh, CO2 budgets, uh, carbon ration cards from your employers have been proposed in Europe where your employer monitors your train, airline, home energy use. So it's just that it's a level of control we've never even contemplated. That's the future of this regulation and it's all in the name of saving the planet, going green, also deals with population issues. Al Gore actually said China will have more population I'm sorry, Africa will have more than China and India combined in the next century, later this century, by 2050. And he said, we need ubiquitous fertility management to fight it. This is a white, wealthy Western politician suggesting that there's gonna to be too many Africans in 50 to 100 years from now, and we need to do something about it. And this is what we're facing. This is, you know, as Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who turned against the organization said, the modern environmental movement is the most anti-human uh, movement today on earth. And I interviewed Vaclav Klaus, the former Czech president of uh, Czech Republic, uh, former Czechoslovakia. And he said, having grown up under communism, the greatest threat we face today is what he calls ambitious environmentalism. And he directly compares the whole quest, the whole way that, you know, Lysenkoism, the whole way this, the Soviet system did it with all the science that had to support the policies and you couldn't dissent and you had to go along and dissenters would be jailed. All that's happening today. We have a US Senator calling for RICO statutes against climate skeptics. We have Bill Nye, the science guy, supporting it, open, open to the idea of jailing skeptics for affecting his quality of life. This is what the state of where we are right now. And this is what college kids, this is what children are being taught, that there's no dissent, that we must do this, that the earth's in great peril, when the opposite is true. I mean, the earth, there's absolutely nothing unusual going on with the climate, and I'd be happy to talk about that as well. I heard that even showers are gonna be restricted. Uh, yes, there's, there's a whole movement. Actually, Al Gore's, uh, was his live earth concerts. He was handing out brochures about taking baths together, saving the bathwater, riding your bike to work. 
Al Gore, meanwhile, all these celebrities up there living outrageous lifestyles of you know, massive carbon footprints. We see this every day, whether it's uh, you know, Al Gore or Leonardo DiCaprio. But at the same time, they're talking about severe restrictions on people's life. And it's not just affecting you know, showers, but it's, we're talking about your transportation, your home energy use. We're talking about every, in fact, Nancy Pelosi went to China in 2009 and said, we need a complete inventory on every aspect of our lives in order to fight global warming. The Japanese government actually said we need to go to bed an hour earlier in order to fight global warming. The theory being at night, you have a high def TV on, you're using more power, and that if you sleep more at night and, and you're only awake during the day, you'll use less energy. This is where we're coming because there's a climate emergency, don't you know? And so they have to be able, they have the justification to regulate it. And Sadly, Republicans, even the Trump administration, no one is articulating any case against it. In fact, our whole flaw, the, the reason I'm, I, I, don't, I, I sometimes lose optimism about this, this battle, you have one side saying, we, all scientists agree, which is completely bogus. In fact, I have a whole chapter on that in my book. In fact, it's called pulled from thin air, 97% consensus. But you have one side saying all scientists agree, we face a climate emergency, we only have 10, 12 years, 100 months, you know, whatever the four years, whatever the moment they come up with. And the other side says, well, it costs too much. Well, we can't really do that. Well, I'm not gonna touch the science. Well, you know, that's a lot of money. Well, we and then we'll do the Green New Deal light. We have a whole contingent of Mitt Romney and other Republicans in the House coming up with a new Green Deal light. Like, well, we must, we can't go that far, but we have to do something. You know, this is a crisis. So what ends up happening is you have one side who never gets refuted officially. And what I mean by officially is, yeah, you can have a lot of scientists, you can have a lot of people, but no one in position of government power, other than President Donald Trump himself, he's the only one, no cabinet members, will actually speak up on the premise, the scientific premise and the garbage that comes out of the United Nations and the National Climate Assessment. What does the public hear? The public hears no dissent. They hear the media, they hear academia, they hear the United Nations, and they hear all these other people afraid to speak as though it's all true. So in a very important way, Trump administration is doing damage to the public perception on climate change because if the most skeptical administration in, in history of Washington on climate can't push back on the science, the science must be solid. That's what's so sad about this. They've been intimidated. There's a, another thing I wanted to ask you, and you mentioned this in your book, and that is how some scientists focus on reducing the population, the human yes. race. It's a very radical thing. Um, and I wonder if, there's a, if you see a connection between the radical uh, push to reduce the population on Earth and Planned Parenthood's agenda to, uh, to basically kill unborn children. Yes, and, and I, the aforementioned interview, Al Gore at a Bill Gates event said, Africa's gonna have too many people, we need fertility management. That's where Planned Parenthood comes in. They're great at fertility management, code words. Um, when you have the population scare like we have now, we have advisors to Pope Francis uh, who believe that the carrying capacity of the earth is only about one, you know, one billion people. In other words, let's wipe out six, seven billion people because the earth can't handle any more than that. And these are people that have gone to the Vatican, I went, I went to a Vatican climate summit and I was threatened to be removed by United Nations security. It was a Pope papal meeting at the Vatican with UN uh, officials where basically the Vatican married itself to the UN climate agenda. And at this agenda, they had the, the, some of the biggest promoters, Planned Parenthood, population control, people like Jeffrey Sachs. I called it an unholy alliance with what Pope Francis did. 
Uh, and it's, it's sad because these, these advisors, these people were given great credibility. They're tied in with the United Nations. This is behind the agenda. When you look at the developing world, one of their goals is to limit their population. These poor countries where people are using you know, animal plows to, for agriculture, they're doing it right because they're farming and they're cultivating the earth. Meanwhile, they're living in huts of dung. They're breathing in uh, all, all the soot and horrible uh, air quality from that. They're polluting their rivers with feces. They have no infrastructure. They have no sewage, modern sanitation, no hospitals, no modern dentistry, high infant mortality. Uh, in my sequel, I'm actually interview, uh, interviewing, but I'm featuring the MTV show Trippin' with, with uh, uh, Drew Barrymore and uh, a couple other actresses who go to these third world hell holes, and that's a politically incorrect term now. You're supposed to say the developing world. Uh, and they praise these countries for being earth-friendly and for not having development. Well, I did an analysis and showed that you know, the highest infant mortality rates were in the countries they were promoting. This is their agenda. They, they actually believe that keeping people at a subsistence level is moral, and it's a, it's a great way to go forward. And that's what the policies are designed to do. President Obama, one of the, his legacies was preventing modern energy coal plants being built in Africa, which would have brought running water, electricity to over a billion people throughout the world. When they don't seem to be uh, progressing in one avenue, they just reinvent themselves. Is that why the term global warming became climate change? Yes. In fact, they not only reinvent themselves. We have uh, people like Steven Snyder who in the 1970s were featured in documentaries in, in search of Leonard Nimoy, warning of global cooling. They flipped sides within 10 years. You could find, I actually was tracing the evolution. Some of the same scientists at NASA, they'd flip sides, go from global warming alarmist, global cooling alarmist to a global warming alarmist. But absolutely, they, they, they use whatever they think will work. And one of the things, the key switch when you mentioned the climate change, I was at a UN summit in Bali and it was a John McCain aid. Now this was 2007. John McCain was co-sponsoring climate bills at the time. His top aide told me that they were gonna start blaming weather events on climate. And I was laughing at him saying, no one's gonna buy that, that's absurd. The earth, you know, there's no way you're gonna be able to link storms, there's no trend. Turns out that's what they did. It used to be global warming. In fact, Al Gore's first film was all about global warming and then it switches to climate change. And that word, I remember even when I was in the Senate back in 2006 and 7, when they were using the word global warming, environmentalists were mad that they were still using that word and the switchover was going to climate change because they wanted something broader. Because at that point, we had an almost 20 year no change in temperature. So it was hard to claim global warming when the temperature wasn't going up every year. So they changed it to climate change. Now, everything is evidence. Hey. You know, you're, uh, you know, there's a storm in uh, Europe, uh, climate change. There's a heat wave in Australia, oh, climate change. There's a blizzard in the East Coast, oh, that's climate change. My favorite was Al Gore claiming that, you know, uh, this is what global warming looks like. And the pages of the New York Times, they started arguing that record cold and snow were now a consequence of global warming because, because it was extreme weather. And there's a whole history of this, and there's other, other phrases people have tried to use, like global climate disruption, global weirding. But the new phrase, and Barbara Streisand and um, Michael Oppenheimer, UN, I'm sorry, Al Gore himself gets, gets a uh, plug for this, is climate emergency. And this is the one that's spreading newspapers, uh, Telemundo, the UK Guardian, universities, towns, state, they're gonna start declaring climate emergencies because they think if people hear that word, they'll have to act. They won't wanna, you know, we don't have time to debate the Green New Deal. We need to pass as a climate emergency. Medieval warm period was from 900 to about 1300 AD. Then you had the Roman warming period around zero AD. 
peer-reviewed studies, geologic records, and all the, all the, all the uh, studies have shown that we have actually um, cooled since the Roman warming period and likely since the medieval warming period to current. In other words, we were up here warm in the Roman warming period, then we cooled a little bit, then we warmed in the medieval warm period, then we went to a little ice age, and now we're back up. Not quite where we were in the medieval warm period. The first United Nations Climate Report, 1990, showed a massive medieval warm period, and then it goes down, and we still weren't at that same temperature. That was untenable. So what happened? We actually had the scientists testify in the United States Senate. He got a call from a colleague who said, we have to get rid of the medieval warm period. These were UN-affiliated academic scientists. Guess what? By year 2000, they got rid of the medieval warm period. They erased it. They went back and they said, you know, we've looked at everything and it no longer existed. They showed a flat line and then the 20th century, a big hockey stick. That's what they did. And then I have a whole chapter devoted into my book on the con that was erasing the past. But they've done it before. Skeptics, climate skeptics made hay out of the eight, almost 20 year pause in global warming. What does the federal government do? NOAA scientists tired of this, they're sick of it. They have satellite data, land, a, this, the temperature's not going up. They're frustrated, they're angry, it's ruining. Right before the UN Paris Agreement in November 2015, NOAA, federal agency, scientists comes out, they called it the pause buster study. They said, you know what? We've redone the numbers, we've looked at the past, we did it wrong, and here's the new data, there was no global warming pause. They erased it. They said they have new numbers, new figures. This would be like a company losing money, getting investigations, sued by investors, and the company says, well, we hired a new accountant, and guess what? We made record profits. All those old people saying we lost money, not true. That's what they did. And so this study comes out, erases the past, the, the climate pause, was gone, no longer existed. This was compared to George Orwell, uh, 1984 tactics. It didn't matter. Obama went to the UN Paris Agreement with the big news that his own federal agency, there's now no pause in global, global warming continues to accelerate. This will silence the skeptics, blah, blah, blah. This is what they do. And you know, not only have they done it there, but they've done repeatedly that it's all malleable. You know, they can change what they need to. And go back to the bumper sticker. Science is not a liberal conspiracy. Oh yes, it can be. Does this tie into the climate gate, the, the fudging the numbers or just doing away with evidence yes. that's clear cut? Can yes. you say a word about the climate gate? The climate gate scandal was in November of 2009. It broke right before the Copenhagen. This was the other effort to save the planet. Now, luckily that got derailed, but we had to wait till the Paris, that was you know, seven years later to, be, to save us. The climate gate scandal in a nutshell was essentially the top upper echelon of the United Nations scientists being caught red-handed, threatening journal editors, threatening their fellow scientists, colluding to craft a single narrative on global warming as a campaign cause. In other words, they openly talked about, well, we can't include that scientist because he did this. We went to the solar conference and they're not buying the CO2s, so let's exclude them. And this journal published this. Let's talk to that editor. He's never gonna publish again if he does that again. All of this was revealed, but hey, doesn't matter, they, all these investigations. The global warming industry investigated themselves and guess what? They found nothing to see. Everyone was exonerated, so skeptics had nothing. Did a whole chapter in my book, I leave it to the reader to see the actual quotes of top UN scientists openly talking about things like with a two degrees Celsius, we have to keep the planet within two degrees Celsius. This is an important goal. Well, gee, the ClimateGate emails revealed that that was pulled from thin air 
literally a quote from the, the, uh, the top UN scientist. It meant nothing. It's a political goal, has no scientific merit. And, and, I, and I published all this, but you'll still see the media and other people refer to it as, in order to keep global warming below two degrees Celsius, and they'll sit there and talk about it like it's a real thing. We know it's not from ClimateGate. We also know that top scientists from the United Nations, I say top meaning high level, not top in terms of scientific uh, ability, uh, we're openly trying to avoid Freedom of Information Act requests, sending out emails to delete this, delete that, we can't let anyone find this. I mean, it was running a campaign, they could not let the narrative be caught at all. But again, the global warming industry investigated, in fact, my favorite investigation into ClimateGate was at Penn State University, they investigated their own Michael Mann, and they basically said he's a great fundraiser, he's well respected in the media, so we cannot find anything wrong here. I mean, people said it was actually, you couldn't parody a more absurd investigation that they did into Michael Mann, but all they needed was that rubber stamp, but the Associated Press, everyone ran with it. The global warming industry has been cleared, there's nothing here to see, ClimateGate was much ado about nothing, and that's how we, we move on. Have you ever been bullied or received death threats? Yes, I get, I've received uh, multiple letters to my home saying we know where you live, here's the extreme weather, it won't be hard to find you when people realize what you've done as a climate denier sent to my home address. I've gotten open, I got, when I was with the United States Senate Environment and Public Works, I, had, I got letters that had to be investigated by the Senate Sergeant of Arms because they were you know, threatening. I've also gotten many email threats, uh, which I usually try to post and publish, but many threats are you know, people threatening to come up and you know, fight me, people threatening, uh, saying that they wanted me to see all my children die. Uh, these are just routine emails. I collect them all and I post them all uncensored with liberal use of F words and all the curse words that people throw at me. So not only you, but your children. They, uh, yes, they're so saying- So they threatened your children. They said they want me to see them all die. It is their greatest hope that I witness their death. That's the kind of stuff you get. But aside from that, which are just words so far, uh, you have actual scientists, and I profile them in the book, of just their careers, essentially. It's unbelievable. We have a lady named Joanne Simpson, first woman PhD meteorologist. This woman retired from NASA after some 50-year career. And she said after her retirement, now that I'm retired, I can finally say it. I'm a skeptic. This is the first woman PhD meteorologist. Imagine all she had to overcome as a woman getting the first PhD. All of that, she still couldn't speak out about her skepticism while she was, she had to wait till she retired. That's how strong this is. And I go through and I show the scientists who've had their, you know, state climatologists who've come out skeptical, had their titles stripped, ripped out fired by the governors, by their universities. Scientists who've had, um, you know, basically said you toe the line or you're gonna be silenced. And I go through detail after detail of all these scientists and it's an amazing thing and it works because it tells the younger, even the ones, the older scientists who stand up to it, the younger scientists know better. So you're getting, a, the reason most of the skeptics who are outspoken are older emeritus professors is because they don't have to worry about the, you know, the whole college system. They'll, they'll be thrown out. The younger ones have faced, there's a man from Australia who literally was fired from his university and, and, and smeared, people lose their jobs just for even questioning the so-called consensus. It's, it's a very effective technique that destroys careers. And not only that, but you have um, the intimidation of the, the social. We have, in the first film we had, ABC News, mainstream scientists saying, you have Holocaust deniers on one hand, and you have climate deniers, and there's not a lot of difference between them. I mean, so they try that, they'll try anything, anything they can to smear a climate, they just throw it out there. 
Uh, Al Gore, the head of the UN, the head of the UN actually said he'd like to see the skeptics smear themselves in asbestos. Um, this is just some of their fun rhetoric that they like to say. You know, this is the kind of stuff uh, which would be considered a hate crime if it was the other way around. If someone said, I'd like to see the, the head of the UN smeared, you'd probably, you know, have people come in and start investigating you. But they get away with it because it's the, essentially the science of our day is supported by it. The, state, the big state supports it. If it's, it's just, you cannot go against the regulatory state. What the regulatory state desires, they will achieve because they, they buy it all. They, they, the money feeds the system. And if you're a scientist, I, in the book I use the example of butterflies, no one's paying attention. But if, you, if you're studying butterflies, but if you say global warming could kill the butterflies in 100 years based on my speculative modeling study, you're gonna get awards. You're going to get a big press release from university. You're going to get to go to Bali and Africa and Cancun and South America. You're going to get to go to all the conferences. You're going to get book deals. You're going to get more publishing. You're going to get interviews. You're going to get money. You're going to get grants. You're going to get funded. You're going to get big staff. You're going to get patted on the back by the university. You're going to fast track to get tenured. There's no downside. If you say global warming is exaggerated, global warming is not happening, global warming is not going to affect the butterflies, you're not gonna just be ignored, you're gonna be placed in a box and you're, you're basically just sign your own academic death warrant. That's the way it works and, and they know that. I mean, Bill Nye actually said in my interview with him, to the extent that scientists who don't agree with the consensus are intimidated in silence, that's a good thing because we don't need their voices, kind of like they're affecting you know, the, fight, the fight against global warming. We don't need them to prevent our progress in the fight against global warming. How widespread is this? indoctrination in the colleges and the schools and how young does it go like I mean it goes our kindergartners yes kindergarten through all the way through everything from tree hugging to children's TV shows to the Earth Day specials kids are taught especially in the last 10 years it's ramped up and I actually testified at Common Core hearings uh, in West Virginia the Common Core curriculum which is spreading around the countries the new curriculum basically says all scientists agree there's no dissent yeah, you know, this is all real happening, essentially dangerous. So I testified in West Virginia, we were actually able to defeat it. Maybe that's because it's in West Virginia's own economic interest, but you know, we're not lucky, that lucky in other states. This is a new mandate that's spreading. So kids are being taught that. We're finding now that by the time they get to college, even conservative, libertarian, free market kids are been programmed and indoctrinated that they accept that there's no, there's no dissent on climate change. And I've talked to many students. I was at the University of Minnesota. I've been at the University of Connecticut. I've been throughout the Northeast at different universities. And I've had debates with uh, you know, climate alarmists or climate warmists or activists on, on the stage. And it's amazing that, you know, that, that colleges are like ground zero for the belief in this. And this is where they're recruiting a lot of these kids. It's actually now not the recruiting anymore. It's elementary school, it's middle and high school. And we have a contingent of elementary school kids now signing on to federal lawsuits uh, saying that the federal government is affecting our quality of life by not fighting global warming. So they're suing the government to take action on global warming. And 60 Minutes is profiling these. They're going out, they're interviewing young kids. Some of them as young as seven, eight years old. They're out there calling, and President Trump is a climate denier. We have all this in our sequel coming out. It's an amazing thing to watch, these little pre-programmed kids. And we actually show how they do it. We have a, a group Al Gore funded, has, puts all these kids in a room. They put this on their video and it ended up on, you know, they put it on YouTube and other channels. 
and it's got the kids watching extreme weather events saying, this is coming, this is happening, we need to act, you need to help do something about it. And the kids are like, I'm shaking, this is so scary. We can actually show them, I'm showing the viewer the actual indoctrination as it happens, how they go about doing it. They put them in a room and they show them stuff and they tell them they must act and you know, they have to turn their parents in. They've got to be like little climate cops. They have to be, you know, watching, you know, whether it's energy use, recycling, they have to save the planet. It's all up to them. They've got a lobby. There's elementary schools, middle schools sending letters to their congressmen as classes where all the kids sign on, the teachers cheering it on. You know, we have to act. The government must do something about global warming. This is our future. As though the government can legislate the climate or save them. I mean, this is, it's really, the last 10 years have been horrendous. There's, it's almost impossible to fight in the public school system because you got the NEA, you have the Common Core, you have no one with courage to stand up to this agenda. Students are ostracized if they do. I had a report, I did a report when I was in the United States Senate, 221-page report of the dissenting scientists, 700 around the world. Reports in high school of teachers throwing the report when they brought them to school, throwing them in the trash can. Like, we're not going to look at this. Like, intimidating the kids, tossing it literally in the trash can. This is the kind of stuff. And so kids are taught, don't speak up, don't say. This is not a college. This is high school. This is junior high, elementary school. So by the time they get to college, frankly, most of the kids are so docile and programmed that they're not even putting up a fight. It's sad. If you could give them some tips Let's say if there's a college student who's faced with this debate, what are the, the three most powerful things that he can say to oppose this? Well, the simplest thing to do, because it all comes down, usually they're pushing a legislative agenda, is you can just say, okay, the Green New Deal, carbon tax, or UN Paris Agreement, how is that going to affect our climate? Explain to me, what impact is the Green New Deal? You're telling me that the storms are getting worse, that temperatures, that polar bears are dying. Is the Green New Deal going to save them? Tell me, on a cost-benefit analysis, I want to know how, and beyond just asking another ignorant kid who doesn't know some activist, ask a teacher who's promoting this. We have reports of the University of Texas A&M. The teacher put up a chart telling the kids, in the midterm elections, which just passed, you have a choice in how you vote. If you vote uh, you know, for one way to save the planet, you can have a temperature and weather extremes on this bar, but if you vote the wrong way, you're gonna get the worst of it down here. College professors, and I have the documentation on that, college professors are actually telling kids how they vote is going to affect their future weather. That's mind blowing. So my question to you that would be to actually make, force them to come up with the science behind that, to quantify it, and then start asking basic questions. Where did the 97% come from? Oh, well, it's on the NASA website. So the NASA webmaster put a reference to 97%. NASA never did a study on that. Where did it come from? Can you explain the 97%? Yes, 97% is what they say all scientists agree. It's a con that they do, so you don't have to be smart. You don't have to research it. You don't have to be informed. All you have to do is, it's like, Four out of five dentists recommend this toothpaste. Who are you going to be? You're going to be an, uh, an anti-dentite, uh, you know, to use the Seinfeld phrase, anti-dentite, go against the dentist's recommendation. You're going to go against all those scientists. What's your degree and how can you, you don't even have a science degree, how can you dispute 97% of scientists? And now it's 99%, by the way. Al Gore just announced it's 99%. Turns out that was based first on a survey of 77 anonymous scientists. We don't know their names. We don't know their affiliation. We don't, know we don't know who they are. All we know is that it was 77 scientists 
they, they whittled down from like over 10,000. And of those allegedly 97% of the 77 scientists agree that global warming is real and, and man influences the climate. But the media turns that into global warming is real, we must act, it's dangerous, it's an emergency, we need the Green New Deal and the climate. Other studies have been equally absurd on this. They, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll say you know, 97% of scientists agree and there's nothing, uh, of papers agree and that we actually had an analysis of that. It's, it's a fraction of 1% that they're claiming. They basically said any paper, they assumed any paper on climate science has accepted the consensus on this. But we had one scientist testify before Congress that it was a pulled from thin air, nothing in the paper actually supported the 97% claims. This is how they do it. It's repeated over and over again to beat everyone into intimidation and silence. That's one of the key talking points that people need to realize. And the other thing is there's nothing unusual. I mean, even the United Nations, even the other federal reports, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, droughts, all that you hear about, even heat waves, not only is there no trend, there's usually declining trends on climate timescales. In the 1930s reigned supreme for high temperature records in the United States by far, even the e Obama's EPA website even showed that. Uh, tornadoes down, big tornadoes down since the 1950s. Hurricanes, no trend. The worst decade was the 1940s. Droughts even, you know, UN has admitted since, you know, the, over 60, 70 years there's a decline in global droughts. Floods, no trend over almost 100 years. That science is not there to support it. So I guess I would say to people, just, you know, read my book, number one, and number two, force people to talk beyond the talking points. They can't say all scientists agree, the UN's top scientists, and we must act, because that's all they're gonna repeat over and over. And by the way, polar bears, which I mentioned, at or near historic population highs, they've never counted this many. Al Gore made it a poster child in his first film. His sequel comes out in 2017. Guess what's not mentioned? The polar bear. Why? Because they're at record population numbers. Al Gore just must have slipped his mind, but didn't even bring up the polar bear, which was, used to be the icon of the climate movement. Are they going to have to open the hunting season for polar bears just to bring the population? That's right. That was the only reason the population was down in the first place was the, the, the hunting. They put a hunting ban on it, which raised the population. By the way, in my book, in the movie, I point out that some of the anecdotal claptrap, you could call it, the uh, armadillo from Texas. In 1970s, it was used as the poster child for global cooling. In other words, ABC News, multiple interviews, science, I think it was Science Magazine or a couple of major publications, we know the earth is getting colder, we're facing dire, the armadillos are forced to migrate south to seek warmer weather. Fast forward, ABC News, same network, modern day. We know global warming is real because the armadillos now are forced to migrate north to get cooler because of the global warming. It's the only animal that I could find in all my extensive research that was both a mascot for global cooling in the 1970s and a mascot for global warming currently is the lowly armadillo. My favorite quote to sum this up, the whole climate debate is, there are literally hundreds of factors that influence the climate. Carbon dioxide is not the control knob. The idea that humans can tweak one variable among hundreds of factors from tilt of the Earth's axis to water vapor to methane to clouds to volcanoes to um, ocean cycles, etc. One selected factor, the human contribution to CO2, which is microscopic of, of the whole CO2, natural CO2, and think we can come out and control the climate with that, the scientists called it scientific nonsense. And that's the bottom line. Even if we face this catastrophe, actually look at what they're proposing. Because here's what I would end with, or, or sum up with. If we face the climate catastrophe, 
you would not want to centrally plan. You would not want to empower the United Nations. You would not want to stifle technology. You would not want government picking winners and losers in energy technologies. You would want to unleash the free market system. The day someone could walk into Walmart and buy you know, alternative energy, if you could go in and buy a wind, uh, not a windmill, but a solar panel, put it on your roof, get off the grid, that's the day you don't have to worry about any fossil fuel debate or anything going on. But you'd want, you'd want people to be wealthier, more prosperous, technological advancements, and none of that is what they're proposing. The Green New Deal is all about masterminding everything and central planning. And that's what's frightening, is that if we actually faced it, their solutions would be the exact wrong way to go. Thank God we don't face it. But if we did, not only would they have no impact on the climate, but it would take us down a completely dark, anti-human road of crushing development, seniors, poor people, fixed income, paying much more percentage of their income for energy to do absolutely nothing for the climate. I was wondering, how do the poor end up? The, the climate change activists, what are they doing to really help the poor? If they cared about the poor, what would they do differently? Okay, this, is where it's, this is where it gets really sick. Bernie Sanders, I was in the United States Senate, uh, I was a staffer on the Environment and Public Works Committee. He was proposing the climate uh, cap and trade climate bill back 2007-8, along with McCain and others, and they were all you know, asking for climate action. Well, they knew it was gonna raise energy costs, so what does Bernie Sanders wanna do? Yeah, it's gonna raise energy costs in the poor, so all, that's okay. We have something they called LIHEAP, which was a federal bill, which would then have subsidized the poor who were paying more in energy. So in a way, it was the ultimate ultimate government solution. You create, by trying to solve a problem which would have no impact, you create a whole new problem, which then you can create a whole new program with new bureaucratic managers and new redistribution of wealth. So this is how they, that's one way they, they were proposing to solve it. In other words, tax everyone and then start siphoning money back as they see fit to whoever is the biggest lobbyist or to whoever, they're, you know, whoever they determine, start rebating. That's the same with the carbon tax proposals today. They would tax people and they say, oh, don't worry, we're gonna rebate the money and you're not, it's not gonna cost a cent. You're gonna get your money back. You're gonna pay all this money to the government, it's gonna go through, they're gonna you know, greenwash it and it's gonna somehow come back to you. Why does it have to go there in the first place then? Oh, but we're doing, anyway. That's what's happening in the United States. Higher energy costs for no gain, people paying a lot more. In the developing world, it's much more sinister. You're basically preventing, you know, keeping people locked in poverty. I interviewed a South African development activist in, at the South African 2012, Durban, South African UN Climate Summit. And he said that the UN Climate Fund literally is set up in order to keep people poor. In other words, the money goes to the governments best able to keep their countries locked into subsistence poverty. And he said, because they're the ones doing it right. So the UN is giving to governments, basically telling them, don't develop. And then the governments gladly accept the money because they're gonna use it to build stadiums, monuments to themselves. They're gonna be handing it out, doing all the favors. At the same time, they're gonna get patted on the back if they don't develop, because they're living the way they're supposed to. They're living low carbon lifestyles. So this is what, um, this is what we're up against. It's a perverse incentive. The incentive is, uh, to not develop. The head of the UN, and I had a chance to ask him about this at a, in Copenhagen in 2009, was Regenda Pachoya of the IPCC climate panel. He was promoting the use of solar, uh, solar lights on, on basically huts made of dungs in the developing world, which is fine. You wanna give people a solar light so they can have light at night. But that was, a, it was almost like, we're not gonna let you develop. The earth can't handle, we would need 10 more earths, we can't do it. 
but we can give you these little solar light. Here's you know, the game shows. When you lose, they'd say, well, we have lovely parting gifts, and you get a box of rice That was the UN's version of rice uh, you know, to hand out to the parting as a parting gift to the losers in this whole climate thing, which is the developing world, where the UN basically says they have to leapfrog. In other words, they can't do what we did to the Earth. We, we use carbon-based energy and we destroy the earth, so there's nothing left for them. They have to leapfrog to solar and wind, which by the way, is only uh, less than 3% of the, of the US energy and global energy at this point. I mean, 100 years ago, 80% of energy came from carbon-based fuels. Guess what, 100 years later, 19, 2015 or 16 was the latest at 80%. Nothing changed in 100 years, but somehow, as Acacia Cortez says, in the next 10, 12 years, We've got to phase out fossil fuels. We're going to take 100 years of history and just do it because, by golly, it's going to be a law that says we have to. It sounds to me like there's a religious component to this because if it's not about science, sound science, and debate based on logic, then why is there so much fervor on this issue? Is there a religious component? There's absolutely, in my sequel coming out, the Climate Hustle 2, we actually have a whole section on the climate religion. Um, we, we have uh, featured Harrison Ford, the actor, who says, I found in nature a kind of God deep within myself. And this is a guy who's like a major, one of the top UN climate activists, goes to the UN summits. He's passionate. He's telling, he looks at and says, climate deniers, we know where you live. He's threatening. He's all over the place. First thing, he flies up the, he's admitted flying up the coast in his private plane for a cheeseburger. So he doesn't walk the walk. He's a total hypocrite. However, we go through the details of where this comes from. At the Earth's, uh, at the, uh, not Earth Summit, but at the um, Climate March in New York City, they had a whole ecological um, Earth worship session in Central Park. We actually went, they got very uncomfortable, they didn't want cameras, but we got them filming. They're all there, you know, sort of meditating, praying to the Earth. They consider the Mother Earth as sort of the living, breathing organism and that they pay fealty to. Uh, it's a sort of mysticism, spirituality uh, of the movement. Many Hollywood celebrities, there, at one of the UN Earth Summits, I believe it was in 2002, uh, Earth Summit in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, they actually brought an Earth Ark. It was like an Ark of like environmental, and we actually have video footage of this Ark, and it actually looks like the Ark of the Covenant, like you would, you, that you would envision. And it was all about the environmental sort of Ten Commandments and all the, the, the Earth Charter in which they were going to abide by for the Earth. It's got all the trappings of a traditional religion, this whole movement. Al Gore would be considered sort of a, a papal figure. Uh, and you have um, all the activists you know, out there practicing this sort of spirituality to the Earth. So it's like uh, a new form of paganism. It absolutely is a form. It's, it's worshiping the earth, it's worshiping the creation, not the creator. And it's a, uh, uh, we interview Vaclav Klaus, who actually says, you know, this is the, the new religion of Western civilization. Atheism uh, has taken over, but replacing that is this sort of, you know, you can call it climatism, or you can call it earth worship. It's mostly in relation uh, to the, uh, the climate more so, that sort of the tree hugger sort of faded, that all the other environmental issues, by the way, have all just faded to the side. They're all in on global warming and the, everything else is secondary to global warming. They're trying now to push species extinction. That's the second thing they're moving into and I actually testified on Capitol Hill on that. But it's the sort of that same, uh, it's the same impetus, but it is, it's a, it's a religious fervor 
Um, and they actually, in Scientific American, a publication, I interviewed Dr. Judith Curry, a climatologist who was a believer in man-made global, and then she descended. They actually called her a scientific heretic. Uh, and as on the headline, and I actually featured the headline, this is the language of religion, not science. So even science publications have been infected with that. If you dissent, they actually label you a heretic. I mean, this is where we are. Right? So this is the evidence, and we go through the evidence that this is actually you know, becoming a modern day religion. We actually feature Michael Crichton as well, who talks about it. You know, how it's, it's very similar in many aspects to a traditional religious belief, and that's how they're bringing people in uh, into this movement. And even, you know, you'll see Democratic candidates today, people like Marion Williamson. I like to joke, she's Oprah's friend, she's into all this. I like to joke, she's married some form of Christian theology with yoga, <laughs> and that's sort of her. She's a guru, but she talks very passionately also about the environment and climate, and it's all part of it. Um, you know, the, the, the whole modern movement, it's really moved toward that. It's come with religious fervor and following in the steps of a traditional religion. How has Pope Francis and Laudato Si influenced this debate? <clears throat> My favorite quote was Al Gore who said, I've never thought of converting to a Catholic, but because of this Pope, I may have to consider it. So Al Gore is considering becoming Catholic because of it. So it's had a significant impact, I think. But what's happened is he's sowed confusion. He's basically elevated climate. So now if you're a Catholic, you don't know, like, wait a minute, is abortion okay to have? Or is it worse to, is it okay to have an abortion? Is being a climate denier worse than having an abortion? It's really confusing. The lowest point that Pope Francis hit was in the actual La uh, 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 Sea. They actually said, we must pray for the successful outcome of a UN climate treaty. I mean, he turned into a United Nations lobbyist asking faithful Catholic to pray for the successful outcome. Well, I didn't follow the Pope on that. And again, the Pope has an unholy alliance. It had a big impact. It, it made the environmental left giddy because they descended upon the Vatican multiple times. We had people like Naomi Klein from uh, author of Capitalism Versus the Climate. Capitalism is incompatible with a livable climate. Guess what? She's now going to papal conferences and presenting to the, the Vatican and the Pope and the Pontifical Academy of Sciences. This is sad stuff. And we have um, Pope Benedict off in the hills of Italy uh, sending gentle rebukes and essentially siding with the skeptics. We had the loudest voice in the Vatican was Cardinal Pell, who mysteriously got caught up in a scandal and had to leave and facing charges now. Again, that was a... A lot of people are questioning that. A lot was, of questions about that. A lot yeah. of questions. A very strange allegations and very strange way it was handled. But he was the biggest thorn in France's side, particularly when it came to uh, you know the climate issue. He actually issued statements, you know, right after this Vatican summit, essentially critiquing the Pope. And it wasn't long after that that he was essentially silenced. I'm not really getting into that because I don't know the details. But he was the only voice in the Vatican publicly speaking out. And he had spoken out in the past. My favorite line from Cardinal Pell was he said, in the past we've had um, pagans would sacrifice you know, to, the, to the earth to improve, and now we sacrifice you know, our, our modern way, our, our carbon, uh, in order to improve the climate. I mean, he basically, he gets that whole religion climate thing, but he was silenced. But I think Pope Francis um, has had a huge impact because it's another tool with which media academia and activists can beat anyone over the head. Even the Catholic Pope, you know, is 
saying this. It's so overwhelming. You know, the idea is just to get every sector of society, and they own it now, and, and have no pushback, and they own that. I mean, other than blogs, retired scientists, there's no official pushback. You know, there's no, the Trump administration's not pushing back. That's the most devastating thing that's happened here in this whole thing. No one is pushing back on the science, and that's, it tells people across the world in America that maybe there's something to this science. Maybe they're all right. Maybe the UN and Al Gore are right because nothing's come, no one's pushing against it officially. And that's what's so sad about this. If you could talk about the connection between socialism and climate change. Sure. The environment, modern environmental movement in the 1960s uh, was sort of during the time of sort of the cultural Marxism uh, and the whole you know, hippie rebellion, anti-war protests you know, the, against the man. And uh, it started at the beginning Overpopulation, 1960s, the solution was, and I, I put in the congressional testimony of people like John Holdren, of Paul Ehrlich, talking about wealth redistribution, central planning. We have John Holdren saying one of the biggest problems we face is too much energy too soon. He laments that an American can get in his car and drive and buy a six pack of beer and how that's just so horrific to the earth. You can see the central planning mindset in the 1970s through the environmental movement, which is directly talking essentially about socialism. They're talking about masterminding every aspect of human activity. And this wasn't even global warming. These were other scares that came and then faded and disappeared. So global warming comes along. And first of all, the head of the UN climate panel was from, uh, she was a socialist herself, Christina Figueres. Another top UN officials come from Socialist International. Um, and they, they all openly talk about that centralized planning. So the Green New Deal is openly endorsed. Bernie Sandals, the open socialist, AOC, the, the socialist. They're using the climate scare in order to achieve the central planning socialist ends, but they don't want to argue the merits. They want to scare you about tipping points. They want to scare you about climate emergencies. You have to act. There's no time to debate. Uh, everyone else is evil, corrupt, and um, you know, there's, they're evil deniers, they're, you know, they're equivalent to Holocaust deniers, and let's spit on them, and they don't pay them any attention. This is, where they, this is where they go with it. So that's their whole plan right now. Massive increases in government spending, regulation. The United Nations um, the, is the most expensive treaty in world history, and it's just getting its, the UN Paris Agreement is just getting its nose in the tent. If you notice, since 2015, when this, all this hoopla surrounding it, we've saved the earth, they're now saying we face emergency, we need more, there's not enough, they want more urgent, they want another UN treaty on top of that, they want a species treaty, which is tied in with climate on top of that. It just keeps piling on. It's not like, you know, you can pass something and then it's all over. Their goal is very clear. They are seeking an end to free market activity because to them, the market is the enemy. And I bring up Naomi Klein again. Capitalism versus the climate. Capitalism is incompatible with a livable climate. In our film, we have George Mambian, a major UN environmentalist, goes to all the UN conferences. He writes for the UK Guardian. He says we have to overthrow the capitalist system in order to save the climate. I mean, they're very open about it. And these are top UN officials talking about it uh, and, and top uh, academics, politicians in the US talking about it. It's, clearly stated this is their goal. Could you talk again about the connection between the abortion movement and the, the climate activist movement? Yeah, well, they're very careful with the word abortion. You don't hear the word abortion mentioned in the climate debate. They'll use phrases, as Al Gore did, fertility management, when he's worried that there'll be more Africans than China and India combined. He wants a lot less of people in color, and he wants to use fertility management to make sure it doesn't happen. 
Uh, Pope Francis had UN uh, in Vatican Climate Summit, a, a marrying of the two, and brought in massive uh, family planning pe uh, advocates, people like Jeffrey Sachs um, and, uh, and other activists who advocate that the Earth has, should only have about a billion carrying capacity. In other words, we need to remove six or seven billion people. So they see people as the enemy. They see fertility management as the solution. We have uh, people calling for a carbon tax on kids, people voluntarily trying to limit themselves to one or two kids because of the earth danger. Uh, and ultimately, this is about limiting human beings' numbers. It's a, it's a re, sort of a regeneration of the overpopulation movement. So they're going after, with this fertility management and code, they're going after the developing world, chiefly Africa, but also South America and Asia. Uh, and this is one of the things that they're, they're using, and they're, they're, they're tying in species. They're saying that humans are destroying other species, and we must keep the human numbers down. There's actually a group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement out there, which claims that you know, they're not going to reproduce and that they're going to, you know, they, they die with their generation. Um, and this is, you know, this is where the movement is. They see humans as the biggest problem. As the, as the destructor, they've removed us as a species that has any right to planet Earth. In other words, they believe, and even with the animal rights movement, it's a similar thing, uh, they don't think humans should be allowed to eat other animals. And what's weird about that is they'll try to say that we're equal, well then why are other animals allowed to eat other animals? Why are lions allowed to eat? Why are bears? Are they gonna stop bears? If they aren't going to stop them, then somehow they're acknowledging humans are different. If we're supposed to be superior and say, well, we don't want to eat other animals, then obviously we're not equal to them because we're doing some higher plane thinking. They're vegans. And we have, in the film I actually show in my sequel that they're pushing insect eating. There's whole climate activists out there pushing the eating of insects. And we have Nicole Kidman you know, doing a whole gourmet thing, you know, likening them to a hairy nut as you chew these insects. But this is all part of it. So abortion, population control, Fertility management, particularly in the developing world, uh, are what they're focusing on and what they're trying to scare people about. And again, this is Al Gore at a Bill Gates-funded Bill Gates funded event warning that we need fertility management heavily in the developing world. And it's Pope Francis inviting in people who promote Planned Parenthood and people who promote uh, this population control, again, chiefly on the developing world. Well, I want to thank you for your work in this, in this field, especially uh, mention your book, A Politically Incorrect Guide to Climate Change. And uh, can you give us a synopsis of this? Yes, this is a, you know, uh, it's a reference book from A to Z on everything you'd want on global warming. And this has the politics, the science, it goes through everything from Greenland to Antarctica to sea level to the Green New Deal to the UN Paris Agreement to climate deals to the whole history of the UN climate uh, process. It's a book that no family with children should be without. This is to be required reading, if for nothing else, that they know there's another side. And once they read this, they're never going to be able to accept these claims. Just, they won't be able to do it because everything they hear is a con and they'll know, how to dis, you'll know how to dismantle the con in very easy steps. And it's all divided by chapters and it's got a little breakout. Every other page has a little box in it uh, of little snippets and entertaining factoids. Mr. Morano, thank you for your, your fight the good fight, and may God bless you and your family. All right, well, thank you. It's just family property. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us on the Echo of Fidelity podcast. And don't forget to check out our website at tfpstudentaction.org. God bless.